invite you to stay standing for just a moment. Jesus, we just want to thank you so much that the cross was about you coming for us. And uh, as we're going to look at today, every one of us in this room can be free. Free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from shame, free from labels we no longer have to carry, free to pursue the life you have for us. Jesus, I pray that we would embrace that today, every one of us, that we would just embrace what you made possible when you went to the cross for us. We adore you. We praise you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to have a seat. That'd be really great. And thanks so much for being here today. I know that there's a lot going on this time of year, graduations and all the stuff. And then the weather, oh my word, wasn't it wonderful this weekend? <laughs> I know some of you don't think so. You'd rather have summer, but this is my summer right now. I love it. I just wish it stayed like this all summer long. But you're going to get your wish, I guarantee you. It's going to be hot at some point. Uh, that's just the way it is here, that's for sure. And I'm just so glad that you're with us today. As we, um, This is actually the next to the last series, uh, message in a series that we've been in called Hope Unleashed, Encounters with Jesus. And we've been going through the book of John and encounters that Jesus had with just ordinary people just like you and me, and what can we learn from that? And how can we be inspired? And how can that then unleash hope in us as we see hope unleashed in the people that Jesus was actually encountering? Uh, And so next week will be our last message in this series, and then we're going to take a break from John for a little while, and then come back to John again in the fall and look at some more ways that Jesus impacted people in a positive way. So what we're trying to do right now is we're focusing on the empathy and the compassion that Jesus had towards people, and how he would, through his love or his touch uh, or his uh, just a look from his eyes, as we're going to see at the end of our time together today, just a look from his eyes or a healing or a miracle or, in some cases, a challenge, that uh, he was able to bring from within somebody uh, this wonderful hope that he, that he has for them as they encounter him. And today we're going to look at what is, I'm calling is the encounter with the guilty. Uh, and so we're going to look at how Jesus comes to someone who is guilty and then how that person is set free and un- hope is unleashed from them. So I just want to ask a question as we begin. Has every, anybody ever struggled with guilt over something you've done? Just raise your hand for me, okay? Just, I think that'd be all of us, and some of us, we wallow in it, right? Uh, and so we have little guilt pity parties, and we stay in that place, and we carry the shame, and it just actually, uh, for some of us, it can actually uh, uh, envelop us, and it can almost take us over, and we get so consumed by that. Do you ever feel the shame of your guilt so deeply that you just wonder if God or anybody else could actually love you? actually like you? Well, if you have, then I just want to say this week's for you as we look at this topic of being set free from guilt. So we get captive to these these thoughts of shame that just want to just cover us like a dark cloud. Today, we're going to look at what is called the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, I I just love the fact that we've had two of these stories that we've looked at where it was the story of the woman, the woman at the well, and then the story of the woman caught in adultery. I I just love the fact that the woman is nameless. uh, And so when we look at this story, we don't have to, even in their day, they didn't think about a particular woman. But what we can do is we can say, this is for all of us. 
every one of us that we can fit in with this woman who is caught in adultery. But also, I just love the idea of how many times that Jesus had encounters with women. And as he encountered them, uh, he elevated women in his culture. Uh, there was nothing, no one like Jesus ever as far as elevating the value and the role of women in culture. And uh, if you just look at the culture of his day and then the, the effects of Christianity after his day, uh, you'll just be amazed at how Jesus cared for, spoke to, honored, lifted up, embraced, had compassion for, had empathy for women and the role that they had in life and in some of the oppression that they had simply because of their gender as we looked at that. So... I just want to say, just you know, think about this. Is is you also? It's the woman, but she's known as the woman who was caught in what adultery, right? How would you like that for the rest of time for you to be remembered with a scarlet letter like that? You just be remembered. Everyone would ever you know think about you. Everyone go back to you that you're not the woman who conquered. You're not the woman who overcame, but you're the woman who was caught in adultery. What if you were someone who? thought you had to carry the shame of that. Well, today, once again, I think this is a great place to be if you think that, because we can all be set free. So I'm going to ask if you would to open your Bible to John 8. That's where we'll be today is John chapter 8. I also want to encourage you that if you don't own a Bible, you just stop right out at those bookshelves. We want to give you a Bible. It's our gift to you. Pull out your message notes. There'd be also a way to look at the Bible verses and then also take some notes today. It'd be wonderful you wanted to do that. And before we actually dig into the actual story, I just want to give you uh, some thoughts about attention that we've seen throughout this series. And the tension that we're seeing is that as Jesus was doing his ministry, as Jesus was teaching, as Jesus was unleashing hope in people because of grace and what he was going to do on the cross, there was a tension between Jesus and the religious rulers or the religious leaders of his day. And so I want to get you to go down below the verses there, and let's just talk about this. And I want to help us to understand this tension and how that tension may be in us as well, okay? So the first idea is this. Religion, in religion, the focus is on me. Focuses on myself, on self, and what I can do in order to earn approval. So that's religion, what I can do to earn approval. And so what we say around here, we say it all the time, is that we don't believe that Jesus came to establish a religion. And so when people say to me, are you religious? I'm like, heck no, <laughs> I'm not religious in the sense that people think about when they're talking about that. But Jesus came not to form a religion because in religion you measure people by how they are doing from do's and don'ts and rules and those kinds of things. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about Jesus came to establish a relationship. And a relationship is when I take the focus off of me and I put the focus on God and what he's done. So off of me and what I can do and now on God and what he has done. See, the danger of religion is that when I'm involved in religion, it's going to harden my heart toward God and people. Harden my heart toward God and people. And we see that in the religious rulers as we look at them. They're not willing and eager to hear from God. Their heart is actually hard toward him. But then we also see their hearts are very hard toward the people that they're called to shepherd and actually care for. Religion creates people who judge people based upon their behavior or their actions. Because that's the way you know who's in or you know who's out. It's the way you determine who's acceptable or not acceptable or how I'm doing in some way. And as we're going to see today, that we're going to look at this, is the problem with someone who's religious is that someone who's religious doesn't even actually see the evil in their own heart. 
because they're measuring themselves by how they're doing. And they look at themselves, I'm pretty darn well, thank you. And so they can think they're way better than they actually are. They don't see the evil that's actually inside of them. But a relationship with God, when I'm encountering him based on what he's done for me, what that does is it actually softens my heart toward him. So I love the songs we sang today. I just love the fact that they opened up my heart about what Jesus has done. And now I'm soft toward God because I realize he loves me this much and he's gave me these things. But it also softens my heart towards people towards others, because we're all pilgrims. We're all going on our way. We're all on our journey. And so I'm not judging, but I'm allowing other people to be where they are without me having to think they have to be like me in order to be accepted by God in some way. Because relationship is not established by what I do, but relationships established by what God did when Jesus went to the cross. That's what we're going to talk about when we get to communion today, where because of his life, death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that we have relationship with God because of that. We are made right by belief in Jesus. And if that's the case, if we're made right by belief in Jesus, and as we're going to look at in just a little bit, if we are in Christ, if God views us as in Christ as if we've never sinned, then we are what? Not guilty. Not guilty. That's our declaration. That's the verdict. And there is no basis for shame. No basis for shame. So let's just enter into the story now. Let's go back up to verse 1 there, and let's talk about this encounter with the guilty. It says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. So this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they've had all the people have come to town. So there's already big crowds there. And they're at the end of this. And then Jesus, at night, goes away, comes back in the morning, and he starts teaching. And so it's just really important for us to understand that because there's a lot of people available for the event that's about to happen. So this is what it says next. It says, the crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd, in front of all these people, and said, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I'm sure we all know what it's like to be caught, right? That we've been caught with our hand in the cookie jar. We're driving down the road, red lights behind us. Oh my word, I'm caught. You know, that feeling of being caught, of exposed, that someone sees what's inside of me. Well, this woman was in a similar position. She had sinned. There's no question about the fact that she sinned, okay? So that's not up for, you know, debate. She had sinned. She had been caught. And there was no place to hide. I don't know if you can imagine what she felt. You try to imagine this. This is the worst day of her life. The worst day of her life. It says that she was a woman who caught in adultery, so more than likely she was married. If she was married, more than likely she had children. More than likely her husband and her children were witnessing this event that was happening. The people that knew her, the people that you know went and she did laundry with down at the river, the people that she cooked with, the people that she went to Sabbath with, they all knew her. We cannot imagine how shaming this was for her at that moment. This is the worst day of her life. But if we just hang on, what we're going to see is that worst day of her life actually becomes the best day of her life. Because the best day. goes on and says this. The law of Moses, this is the religious leaders. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So it says next what they're doing. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. 
So, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about the thing that most of us probably think about when we read this. So they bring this woman caught in adultery, and the biggest question I have is, where's the dude at, right? <laughs> where's the guy? I mean, my word, it takes, last time I checked, it takes two in order to be in adultery, okay? Not just one. So what did he do with the guy? Where's he at? Well, the guy wasn't the purpose. In fact, he was probably part of the whole trap. And so they brought this woman, and because they were actually caught, is the way it says here, caught in the act, we don't know how much clothing she might have on. We don't know, you know what kind of, you know, so she might have looked like at this moment. And uh, so the trap is laid. She's got this woman there, and she looks the part of what they're talking about. And I'm sure it created this big stir. So there was already a crowd around Jesus, because we've already learned that crowds always came to Jesus because he was such a good teacher and because of what they might experience from him. But now it's almost like, you know, in the playground and you hear fight. What does everybody do? They come, right? So everybody was coming at this point to just witness what was going on. And I want you to realize as you do this, the woman, what she was feeling, the religious leaders' hearts were hard toward her hard toward God and hard toward her, and they actually had no concern, no compassion for this woman at all. None. In fact, they were so focused on trapping Jesus that this woman was nothing more than a pawn in their game. She was a non-human at this point. They were using her to get to him, and all of this was adding to what she was feeling, all alone, guilty, shame. She's now being paraded before the whole community for everyone to see, and she's feeling all of these things. And you think about it. These were the religious leaders who were called by God to shepherd his people, to care for his people. And there was not one of them. Their goal was not to help the woman. She was caught in adultery. She's got issues. It was not to help them. They were not concerned with her at any level But all they wanted to do was use her, drag her reputation through the mud on the Temple Mount in front of everyone. Now, what were they doing? Well, they were using her to trap Jesus. In the process, they didn't care. This is what religion does. They didn't care if they humiliated or shamed the woman. So here they do. They've got her there. She's caught in adultery. They they throw, they lob this, they've been thinking about this, they lob this question to Jesus. They, ha, they think, right now, Jesus is in a no-win situation. Why? No win. Well, if Jesus says, you know what, I, I realize that the woman was in adultery, and you know what, uh, you know, we all struggle with sin, don't we? Why do you say we just let her go? Well, they knew if Jesus did that, that he would be violating the, the law of Moses, and everybody would then kick him out and say, we're not listening to you. You're no rabbi. You're no teacher. You violated Moses' law. But then, on the other hand, if he said, you're right, she deserves to die. <laughs> Let's just pick up the stones now and throw them, that what would happen is that they would, because of the way the temple was arranged and the, the, the wall where the Roman soldiers were, they were actually watching this, and in Rome... It was illegal. They'd made it illegal for someone. For, so they had these, um, the Jews were underneath the authority of the Romans. And so the Romans said, you can do anything you want. You can do all these things, and there's a couple of things you can't do. But one of the things you cannot do as an independent nation is you don't, cannot declare capital punishment on anyone. 
So if he said killer, he's declaring capital punishment, and the Romans are going to be mad at him, and they're going to go after him. But also, he's going to discount his own ministry. His own ministry was to care for the broken and downtrodden. So he's in a trap here. That's how they see the trap happening at this moment. So what we're going to do, just enter into that. Let's enter into the scene now. And we're going to learn three things from this encounter with Jesus. Okay, the first, we're going to learn that the guilty are not alone. From this encounter, we're going to learn that the guilty are not alone. So let's begin. We'll read with 6b uh, through 9. So Jesus then, after the question, stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. Uh, It's pretty tense here, right? He's asked the question. I just can't believe what they're going to feel right now. When they think they have Jesus on the spot, they, they lob the question at him, and then he bends over and starts writing in the dirt. You know, and doesn't talk to them. But I can't imagine the tension that's going on here. They kept demanding an answer. Speak, speak, tell us, tell us. So he stood up again and he said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. You got to know that there's all kinds of, what did he say going on at this point? What's he talking about? Then he stooped down again. He's using silence to make a point. Stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, no one knows what it was that Jesus wrote in the dust, okay? So we just don't know that. I'm sure you maybe at some point heard a message where some pastor was so creative and eloquent, and he gave you this wonderful reasons why Jesus, what he wrote in the dust, but I'll just say this, he didn't know, okay? Because the Bible doesn't say. So we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dust, but here's what we do know. We do know that the word right here that's used, right, W-R-I-T-E, that's used here, was the word that was used specifically when you would want to say, I'm going to write a record against. So we know that whatever he wrote was a record against these religious leaders in some way. Some think it was because, you know, that Jesus, it says, used his finger to write. That actually, when you think about this, that it says when God gave the Ten Commandments, the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. And so then actually what's happening is Jesus is just writing the Ten Commandments. And so they can see their own sin in some way. Others believe that what he was doing at this point is he was writing the names of religious leaders. So he'd write down Tommy. And he would write the sin that that Tommy had done next to it. Some people think that that's actually what he was doing. One person said this, I believe Jesus was writing down sins. Like he would write down the sin, adultery, tax evasion, and he would draw an arrow from the, to, the name, to the person who was guilty of that. I thought that was pretty creative. You know, that's what he was doing in the sand there, in the dirt. But ultimately, we just don't know. We don't know what Jesus wrote. And you know what? If it was important... John would have said, right? We just got to know that it was important he would have said. But what we do know is that the air is thick, right, with apprehension and drama. So it was so thick, I'm sure you could have cut it with a knife as they were waiting on Jesus to respond. And as usual, Jesus, I would never want to get into a debate with Jesus, okay, an argument. (laughs) He just cuts them. He cuts them with this brilliant statement. He stuns everyone by turning attention away from the woman and turning attention away to, uh, onto them. Away from the woman and onto them by making everyone realize at that moment that she's not alone. Everyone sins. Everyone. Everyone sins. See, Jesus forces them and forces us to realize that right now, 
we are all like this woman. We are all like this woman. We are no different than her. I am this woman. You are this woman. We are all this woman. Jesus wants the religious rulers and leaders to realize their sin and guilt were keeping them away from God. Their hearts were hard toward God and hard toward other people. They needed Jesus, what Jesus was doing, as much as what the woman needed Jesus at this point. They needed grace as much as anyone needs grace. Because like Paul says in Romans 3, he says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So what happens is, and I don't know how long it took for this action to actually happen, but the, the, the religious leaders started moving away, and it says that the oldest went first. Uh, I'm assuming it meant because as you age, you're more open to your, your, your um, problems. You're more open to your sin. Maybe you're a little more humble. It doesn't happen all the time because I see people are old and never even get to this place. But maybe because they're older, they have more experience and they're like, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. And so they know they're nailed and the Holy Spirit's working on them and they drop their stones beginning with the oldest all the way to the youngest until finally everyone has dropped their stone and there's no one left but Jesus and the woman. By dropping their stone, here's what they were doing. Everyone was admitting their guilt. They were admitting their guilt. Because here's the deal. Everyone knows that we're guilty. Everyone knows we're guilty before God. See, the ones who had brought someone who had been caught in sin were now caught by their sin. They were caught by their sin. No one is alone. We are all sinners. We're all guilty. And there's no person without sin. It takes great humility to admit that. And especially for religious people who have based all of their standing and all of their value on what they can do and how they can keep all the rules and regulations. It's really hard. But folks, that's the only way to begin the healing from shame and guilt is for us to admit that I have sinned. I have sinned. We've all done it. Second is this. We learn that the guilty are not condemned. The guilty are not condemned. Now, this is just so cool. We read through this. What happens here? So the next verses, beginning with verse 8, it says this. Then Jesus, everybody's gone, everybody's away, it's quiet, very quiet. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, and when it says the woman here, we have to realize that when this phrase is used, the woman, it's a term of value. It's a term of endearment. When Jesus is recorded looking at his mother, when he was on the cross, he said, the woman, he says to her, term of value, term of endearment, it's a term of respect. So this word woman there, this used there, it shows the value that Jesus places on this woman apart from her sin, apart from her sin. He didn't see her as a label right now. He didn't look at her as an adulterer right now. Instead, he saw her with eyes of compassion and empathy. She was a creation of the Most High God. And that's what he's seeing right now. He saw her as a valuable creation of God. And he says to her, woman, woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one, one of them condemn you? 
no, and underline this word, Lord, she said, no, Lord. I, many scholars believe that this was her actual salvation moment. This was the moment of her repentance when she went from pursuing her own way and pursuing sin that now she's pursuing Jesus as her Lord. No, Lord, she said, and Jesus said then, neither do I, neither do I. So instead of condemnation from Jesus, she might have expected that because she wasn't maybe sure who Jesus was, and she might have been reflecting on the religious rulers and what they might have been saying. Instead of getting a look of disgust and a look of judgment from Jesus for what she had done, what she saw so surprised her. She saw a look of dignity and compassion and concern, and concern for who she was. And what Jesus knew she could become. What he knew she could become. One of my favorite go-to verses when I'm really struggling with uh, feeling guilt, whether it's false guilt or real guilt, one of my go-to verses is Romans 8.1. Maybe that for you as well. But it says this in Romans 8.1. There is no, underline that, highlight that, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. As you look at the word no, I'm thinking about this. You know, sometimes there was a phrase that was on coffee mugs. It was maybe on bumper stickers. It was on posters. And the, the phrase goes something like this. What part of no do you not understand? No, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, it says. And so it's true then. This is the way God sees us when we're in Jesus. Paul's saying that when I'm in Christ, my sins are forgiven immediately, completely, and freely. And it's all about grace and what he does for me and not my sin, not my sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And John, John recorded Jesus' words from John 3, where it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, beginning for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. And then right after that, John records Jesus as saying again, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not condemned, but saved for them through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And condemned means to punishment, to hell, separation from God. Those are words of freedom, folks. Jesus didn't come to condemn this woman. Not in any way. And that's what religion does. We get all confused about what religion's role is. And then Jesus' role, Jesus' role was not to condemn. It was to set free. He's there to save her and set her free from her guilt and her shame that she carries. And folks, I just want to stop just a minute. If Jesus' role wasn't to condemn her for her sin, I just want to say this about church. It's not our job as a church to condemn people for their sin. It's not our job. It's not our, we are here to what? We are here to save them, to rescue them, to point them to freedom, to show the love and the compassion and concern of Jesus so they can experience him. We're not the moral police of culture. We need to drop our stones. We need to drop our stones and remember that every one of us is a sinner saved by grace, except for grace, there go I. Every one of us. But I want to make one thing clear, because we think that we're getting a little soft here on sin, okay, by thinking about this, is that one thing is clear. Jesus may not condemn her for her sin, but Jesus did not condone her sin. Jesus did not condone her sin. 
See, Jesus wasn't glossing over her, saying, oh, God's okay. Adultery, no big deal. Haven't hurt anyone. Go ahead. Oh, who would I? I don't want to, you know, infringe upon what you think is good for you, but it's not good for me. Or it's not good for, no, I don't want to do, Jesus didn't do any of that. Jesus didn't rationalize her sin. Jesus didn't excuse her sin. Uh, N.T. Wright comments on this. He does a really good job of describing what I'm talking about. He says this, forgiveness is not the same as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter, but that God is choosing to remove it. He's choosing to take it away to make someone clean. Jesus is forgiving her sin. Here's the deal. Jesus knew that his mission, we talked about this last week, his mission was to go forward to the cross. And he knew that there was going to be a moment when he would die on the cross in forgiveness for this woman and her sins, but not only hers, but ours as well. That's what he knew. And he doesn't condemn sinners because that wasn't his purpose. But also he doesn't condone sin because Jesus knows this about sin. Sin separates. Sin hurts. Sin kills, steals, and destroys lives. Jesus did not condone it. See, we have a sin problem, and ignoring it or redefining sin is not going to make it go away. But he doesn't condemn sin. Okay, last idea is this. We learn that the guilty are not stuck. Are not stuck. I was talking to somebody this morning, and they told me that uh, uh, someone in California won the lottery last night, the Powerball lottery, like $480 million. One person in California won the lottery. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Wish they went to Twin Cities Church. <laughs> it's like, all right, that's what I said. Uh, but then I was thinking about this. I was like, you know how... Um, I, my, the way I, I do outlines and stuff, I like alliteration. You guys know that. I've been doing this for 25 years and love that. And, and you know the way that outlines usually flow. And so what I, I, I know that you do, because you talk to me about this, is you try to guess what my fill-ins are going to be. So that's a game you play, and you, you know, you're trying to guess. And so I was just thinking about today's fill-ins and thinking, I should have done a lottery for today's fill-ins. Uh, because I don't think any of you ever would have guessed this fill-in. Not stuck, right? Well, what does that mean? It's gone all not stuck. Well, let's just explain that. Here we go. What I want to talk about here is the fact that I'm not stuck in my sin. I'm not stuck in my guilt. I'm not stuck with the shame all over me. I'm free. I'm free and I'm new. This is what Jesus said in verse 11. He said, neither do I go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And Jesus is saying, here's the chance you've been waiting for. She didn't know she'd been waiting for this chance. But here it is, right before her, a chance to actually win the lottery on this day. Here's the opportunity you've been longing for. Here's something greater than you could have ever dreamed. You can be free of your sin. You can be free of your label. You can be free of your shame. You can be free of your guilt. You don't have to carry that any longer. Isn't that great? What he offers the hope in that, he's saying you're free to become not any longer the woman caught in adultery, but yeah, you're the woman who was given grace. You're the woman who received grace. See, folks, God wants us to admit our sin so that we can be set free. And then when we're set free, here's what some of us do. We're set free. We're like, oh, look at all I've done. I look at my past and look at all I've done here. God, you remember all this, right? And so I now am free. I'm made new. But you know what? I know I've blown plan A, 
So, God, the best I can hope for is maybe like plan X. You know, it was pretty bad. Plan X. And so that's about all I get for the rest of my life. And God says, no, I didn't set you free so you could have plan X, plan B, plan C. I set you free so you could live in plan A for the rest of your life. And that unleashes hope as we get to do that. Newness of life. See, when we fall flat on our face, Jesus can miraculously turn that moment into a time of renewal and restoration. Hebrews 10, 17 says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. He will wipe them out. You need to wipe them out. You need to clear the hard drive. Clear the memories. Quit replaying the tapes. We don't have tapes anymore, do we? Quit replaying the images that are coming through your head. You are not defined by your sin. Not defined by your sin. You are a new creation. Then look what it says in Romans 6. It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So the whole gospel is in this story. First, you're not alone. We've all sinned. Admit that. Not alone. All sinned. Second, you're not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free of the condemnation of others and the self-condemnation that you want to pile on yourself, you're free of that. You can stop condemning yourself. And number three, you're not stuck. You're now free and empowered to become a new creation. Step forward into your new identity. Don't stay stuck in the dark and muck of your sin. Jesus doesn't condemn this woman. He sets her free. He doesn't condone the sin of this woman. He challenges her to move beyond and make him the Lord of her life and to choose his way as the best way. By the power of God, Jesus makes dead things alive, brings them to life. He brings life where there's no life. He makes a way where there's no way. He says, go and sin no more. When he says that, it's the same as saying, go and live as someone who's been set free. That's his call to her and his call to us. And then Romans 6, 14 says, Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the law, under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Isn't that a great place to live? So now we're going to experience communion. We're going to actually celebrate what he did for us as we have a time of communion together. And so what I'm going to do is invite ushers. You can go ahead and move into place now. Love to have you do that and just stand there and wait for the time when you'll go ahead and serve. But what we're going to do is I'm going to set this up in a way that I hope will draw you into the story we just heard and what God's done for you. We're going to watch a clip from the movie, The Passion of Christ. So the woman we've been looking at today, she's in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And so when Jesus is suffering for sin, when he's, before he goes to the cross, when he's suffering for her sin, she actually sees it, and she has a flashback to the day when Jesus said, whoever has not sinned, throw the stone, and then he set her free. She has a flashback to that day, and she's to that moment when she, who was caught in sin, has been released from that. Now, what I want us to do is I want you to be thinking about this moment. Think about what's happened right now. Think about yourself. I want you to watch this. I want you to put yourself in her place. Because, folks, we all have something we could be accused for. Every one of us. Remember, we've all sinned. Something we'd be accused for. Watch when we get to a particular... There's no dialogue. Watch as you get to a place in this clip. And just imagine as she looks up, her eyes, Jesus locks eyes with her. Imagine what she felt as she experienced the compassion, the empathy, the grace, and the love of Jesus. And right after that, our ushers will start serving. 
When they do, please take a piece of the bread and a cup, and then we'll all have communion together. There will be a verse in the screens that we can look at. Let's go ahead and watch this clip.
so this bread represents Jesus' body, and uh, that was broken for us, is what the Bible says, that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, he took it upon himself, that we could, uh, to pay the penalty for our sin. So Jesus became guilty so that we could be not guilty, so we could be made clean before God. So let's eat this, let's thank Jesus for that gift. And this juice represents his blood that would be shed, perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And it solidified the covenant that God was making between us and himself that what Jesus did led us into the new life that he offers, the new existence, the new person. We have, it's this covenant, it's commitment that he will make things, all things new. And so as we do that, let's drink this and thank Jesus for shedding his blood for us. Well, Jesus, thank you so much for this story of this woman. Thank you that you were so, um, I guess, driven is the word, toward your mission that you knew exactly what to do when you were confronted with this dilemma, with this trap. And that was to help everyone in the crowd to know that they were the same, all guilty. And pointing towards the future, when you would go to the cross and you would pay the penalty for that guilt, and then everybody at the foot of the cross would be the same, forgiven. I just thank you for that picture. Thank you for that reality. I thank you for the now the purpose you've given us to be bearers of hope into our world. Not rock throwers, but grace providers. Help us to be that, Jesus. Help us to be your hands and feet and your love and your compassion to those around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.